Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. around the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we're doing something today that we always find intriguing, is reconnecting with old friends. And since we are what we do and where we are, um, these are all old friends in the food business. We're going to start with an, an interesting interview, and I think you will find it interesting, with Paula Lambert of the Mozzarella Company who's a real pioneer in the field of of, uh, cheese in America. And she's going to recreate from us uh, her early beginnings and the growth of the cheese industry in the U.S. Paula Lambert, um, you are golden and icon in the the cheese field in in the U.S. Your company, the uh, mozzarella company, celebrating its 40th anniversary. So just the number 40, can we look back and and can you describe what the scene was in the the cheese industry in the U.S.? And then also about, you were, I believe, the first one to introduce um, American mozzarella. Tell us what it was like. Well, uh, first of all, the word artisanal cheese did not exist, and uh, what we were doing, I decided, was called specialty cheese, and uh, there really, in 1982, were not very many people in the United States that were making cheese. Uh, There was... Laura Chanel in California, and she was making goat cheese. Uh, She had lived in France and tended goats there and started making it in Sonoma in California. And then eventually she started selling it to Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. Then on the East Coast, there was a girl whose name was Letty Kilpatrick and... I, that might not be her name. Letty uh, started. I, I have to look it up. Uh, yeah, anyway, she then. was making she was making goat cheese, and then uh, that was around Boston or someplace in Massachusetts. And then there was a man in Illinois whose name was Tom Dietrich, and he was making a blue cheese. And those are the only people that I could find out anything about and it was a it was very small it was before the internet it was before anything else and uh along came this group of cheese professors at Rutgers University in uh New Jersey I think at, or mm-hmm. New York and New they Jersey. had they had uh cheese professors one was named Paul Klein one was named Kazakh Kawakoski and they uh were they were you know teaching sort of the science of of cheese making and so they these professors are the ones who founded the American Cheese Society and that was in about 1983 or 84 and uh so that was the beginning of the American artisanal cheese industry or business and there were these people came together and by about 1984-85 there were more cheesemakers there was Judy Shad in at Capriole in uh Kentucky in Indiana and there was Mary Keene out in California making Humboldt go Humboldt fog yes and then uh there was Allison Hooper up in New yeah, York Allison. and she uh uh-huh. she and Bob were the Vermont Cheese and Butter Company. So that's 
about who there was. Oh, and there was another girl in California, Redwood Farm, and she was. These were all people making goat cheese, so nobody was doing very much with cow's milk. They were all making goat cheese, and it was because these women had farms and they had goats on the farm, and their herds increased, and they milked the goats. And then they had excess milk, and so they started making cheese. That's the yeah. way the whole thing started. It's just now, amazing. Hold on a minute. I know. There, was, there were also so any, cheese makers in Wisconsin, right? Well, I didn't know them. Eventually, oh, okay. I used to go... I used to go up to Wisconsin some, and uh, because the University of Wisconsin had a cheese making studies, and so we would have the American Cheese Society meetings up there in Wisconsin, and we would meet those professors and those cheese makers. Like Widmer was one who was making a cheese up there. Uh, there was like a, a washed rind cheese, and there was Sid Carr at Carr Valley, and there were other people in He's Wisconsin. still making cheese. <laughs> yes, I know. So, I know. Anyway, the American Cheese Society was a great, uh, great thing for all of us because it brought us together. Uh, we could learn from each other, and uh, they brought in experts. And, like, they brought in this one woman from England one time, and they brought in a man who was making some kind of cheese in Italy. And we got to meet these other small cheese makers from around the world. And uh, that was Wonderful, and we met each other, so that was the best. So then you woke up one morning and said, "Guess what I'm going to do today, Paula? I'm going to I'm going to make mozzarella because I'm going to make mozzarella." It seems seems like a strange turn in the road you made there. <laughs> Well, it was just, you know, I, I had lived in Italy, and I loved uh, everything Italian. And I used to go on trips to Italy after I left Italy and came back and lived in the United States. And so I wanted to have a business that involved Italy, and I liked to cook. And so I decided that it w I would make this cheese that I had had in Italy that I loved so much, and that was fresh mozzarella. So no one had heard of it, and uh, it, I mean, they had a little in New York, but nothing was being imported from Italy, and uh, so I filled a niche. Nice. I mean, you literally were the first one to seriously attack naked American mozzarella, right? That's right, and they they were making it, you know, in delis in New York and in Boston. And one time I went up there, and I went to uh, one of those stores in Little Italy in New York, and I went in and I asked them where they made their mozzarella because I didn't see where they could get the milk and how they could do it in this store. And they said, well, lady, we don't make it from milk. We make it from this curd we buy. Do you know how much we'd have to charge if we made it from milk? <laughs> and I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. And I, you know, I was sort of embarrassed to say, well, I make it from milk. <laughs> it's really funny. I remember the first, first time that Peter, Peter was in the area where they are famous for mozzarella in Italy, near near a Roman monument called Pestum. Yes, yes. And and we and we 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 looked around and we couldn't we couldn't see any buffaloes. <laughs> they were all inside the barns. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we kept looking for the buffaloes. <laughs> Well, well, I know I did, they're inside did, the barns. <laughs> I heard something just just yesterday, Paula, that you might be interested in. Uh, are you, perchance, since you love Italy so much, watching a program by Stanley Tucci about Stanley Tucci in Italy? Well, I watched some of it. Discovering Italy. Yes, I, I watched part of it. Did you Did you see the one about London? About London? No. One one of his chapters of his series was about London. It was it was it was last night, in fact, that I watched it, and he discovered that someone was making mozzarella 
in the suburb of London called Acton, A-C-T-O-N. And uh-huh. they, were making, they were making it out of cow's milk. And they said, why, why, why? And this was British cow's milk. So he asked them why, why they were making it out of British cow's milk. And the cheesemaker said, because it's so much better. So much richer, it's so much more. <laughs> well, you know, the cows. Well, the the mozzarella. Uh, it's some milk has more butter fat and solids than other milk, and I was always told that the kind of cows like Holstein are the perfect butter fat for making mozzarella, and. Uh, Sometimes, you know, they add extra milk or extra solids, like they might be using Jersey cows, and it just doesn't turn out. You need this this milk that has about 3.8% butter fat or to 4%. Right. And, but, however, water buffalo have 8% butter fat. So it, it's all, all, I don't know. It just depends. A mozzarella surprise, I think, of all time was when we interviewed someone who was making mozzarella in the country of Colombia. Oh, oh I forgot uh-huh. about that. And we, and we said, why, why are you doing that? And they, and they said, well, we got all these buffaloes that were helping us to break down the forest. <laughs> so so they, since they had buffaloes they producing milk, they figured they could make mozzarella in yes. Colombia. Well, th- they were making it a long time ago in Venezuela, and it probably oozed over the border or something. <laughs> and, yeah, it's interesting, I mean, how these animals are in these different countries and uh, what their milk is used for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They make some wonderful things from water buffalo milk that are like custards and flan and things like that, because it's yeah, so Yeah, you've rich. expanded. You're, you you make a lot more than um, than mozzarella now, right? Yes, we do. We started out just making mozzarella and ricotta, and then we moved on into other cheeses, like fresh goat cheese, and then cheeses I learned to make in Italy, like mascarpone and cacciota yeah. and... Um, different cheeses like that. So we have a whole line of Italian cheeses, and then we now make Mexican cheeses, all kinds of Mexican cheeses that are just delicious, uh, like queso Oaxaca and queso fresco. Uh, we queso make Menonina, yeah. which is a like a chihuahua cheese, and that's great for melting. So we make all kinds of things like that. Then we make a few cheeses that are uh, more European with washed rinds, and uh, then we make some that have southwestern chilies and herbs in them. So we just make a, a wide variety. Now, what motivated the, the change in, was in taste? I mean, it, it, I think the, the product got better and better and better because there were more and more people with more discerning palates that wanted it, right? Yes, and people people travel more now than they used to. There's this whole interest in food, like the TV Food Network didn't exist until the late 90s. I think it was in the 90s that that started. Yeah, I mean, I remember all- when I was at Pittsburgh Magazine, they called me about something about the Food Network, and we didn't even have it in Pittsburgh. I'd never even heard of it. And mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. that would have been the um, 90s. Yes, I yeah. think it was about then. And, uh, you know, things have just changed. I mean, there's so much interest in, in food. There are all these magazines. Now there are all these websites. Now there's just – it's just blossomed. I mean, it is really – Grown and years ago, people used to say that cheese was 25 years behind wine. And remember that big interest in in American wines that came along oh, in the yeah. right. 80s and 90s. Well, now we're 25 years past that, and there's this great interest in cheese. And they were right about that. You know, we went to uh, a couple of years ago. We went to the Cheese Society annual 
um, meeting in, it, it was in Pittsburgh and we went and um, I mean I was just flabbergasted I mean I never ever thought that I would get to the point where I said enough cheese but after the first day of it I couldn't even look at cheese <laughs> well did you in the festival of cheese where they have all those cheeses they have a thousand or twelve hundred cheeses out yeah. on display it's just like yeah. another world <laughs> It is. They were the ones well, the ones I mean, that's how in. it's grown. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think um, it's coming back to Pittsburgh uh, this year, it? maybe. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I mean, we had just had IACP here. Yes. But, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah I'm, I missed that because I was in Italy. Uh-huh. Uh, the inter- interesting thing is that for, for all the American cheese is kind of a, a Johnny-come-lately. It, ter- it turns out that, in fact, this country, which I've adopted as my home, pr- produces some very, very fine cheeses, which are international prize winners. Oh, thinking, yes, like Rogue. Yeah, and thinking, I was thinking of Rogue immediately. Yeah, and Rogue also, has, you know, Jasper Hill is very good. Oh, Jasper Hill is wonderful. I love those cheeses. I mean, there are a lot talking to the guy at Rogue, um, there were two of them, and now there's just the one I can't remember. Yeah, name. David Grimmels. David Grimmels. We interviewed him many times. Um, he, I love hearing him tell the story about the the little Italian man that that, that uh, sort of uh, tutored them while they were making cheese. Yes. But smuggled was... some, the mold from uh, Roquefort <laughs> out of that. France into into uh, Washington. Yeah, no, that was they yeah. That cheese factory that they bought in Oregon was owned by Ig Vela from Sonoma, and uh-huh. uh, they've done wonders with that. They, it's just what fabulous. Well, I just think their cheeses are remarkable. And it just yeah, well, so our latest fun is is a cheese food. From a company called is it River Edge Sweetheart? I can't remember what it's called, but um, yeah, I I've mean we never knew there Edge. was such a thing. Hmm? I've heard of River's Edge. Yeah, I I never knew that. When you think about it, I mean you're making all these cheeses and they have to be made into these special balls or shapes or whatever it is you're doing, um, and to do that you end up with all these bits of cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trimmed. And what to do with that? Well, they use it to make what they call cheese food. <laughs> oh, really? It's, yeah, it's it's like a cheese spread, but it's real cheese. It's, that's interesting. In one of my cookbooks, I have that recipe that's called Fromage Four, which means strong cheese, and you take these uh, these different uh, cheese scrapings and uh, leftovers, and you mix it together, and you put in a little brandy, and you put in a l- <laughs> some, I think, raisins and maybe lemon or lime zest, and anyway, it's delicious. It's like a cheese spread. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Of course, our kids lived for a while in um, South Carolina, and I, I just never could understand um, the popularity of pimento cheese. Oh, I but love then, it. See, I'm from yeah, the Yeah, well, yours is so much better. You know, I mean, the, the thing is that what they generally have down there, and they call pimento cheese, is not really very good. You know, it's not great yeah. cheese any, by any measure. So, I don't know. Um, I bought some at the grocery store, just, you know, a commercial brand a few yeah. months ago, and it was so delicious. I, oh, really? I served it for hors d'oeuvres, and everybody just loved it. <laughs> yeah, well, people in the South love it, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you a funny story with our son, Adam. As you can imagine, um, being raised in a foodie environment, I had some of the best. I mean, he's eaten top restaurants of the world since he was born. <laughs> so, he, he, you know, this is, he goes off to college, and he was coming home for a family dinner, I think it was. 
And um, I was talking to him on the phone, and he said, let me bring some um, appetizers. And I said, <laughs> okay, what did you have in mind? He said, I found this wonderful, wonderful cheese. He says it's <laughs> called Velveeta. <laughs> and I started to cry. I, mean, <laughs> I, I literally was crying. And I was telling my trainer at the gym uh, a couple of days later, and I started to cry again. <laughs> <laughs> you were laughing so much. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So, um, when the, you you have won another um, Sophie, that you've won how many awards? You just have a. Do you keep all these awards? You know, they always display them at Fancy Food Show. Do you keep all your oh, awards? I- well, I have, I, I, yes, of course I keep them. <laughs> I love them. I mean, it's it's a great honor to win these awards. I mean, when you're chosen by professionals and by your peers, it's. I think it's just fantastic, and I love to bring them back to the and give them to the cheesemakers who worked so hard, who made all these things. Uh huh. That's a great idea, Paula. Yeah. Um, and Mary Keene, I, I had news about her. I'm trying to remember. She has, um, she did sell the business, didn't she? Yes, she did. But she still has she some sold kind it. of. Yeah, what? I'm sure she's still involved somehow. Yes, yeah, I, I really don't know. I haven't seen her because now we, you know, the fancy food show has been closed down for a couple of years, and we. Yeah. And I haven't been to the American Cheese Society for a couple of years, and so I've just lost right. touch. Well, we all have, and I mean, that's part of why we're all so lonely about things and why when we reconnect we're so excited because so much was lost. I mean, I just, I mean, I just got a notice about the um, Food on the Edge, uh, FOAT, um, which is out of Galway, and mm-hmm. uh, you know they they tried doing the um, remote stuff and the online stuff, but it's not the same. And so many people, restaurateurs and chefs, have gone out of business. It's really sad. Yes, it is. It, it's hard to hold on. I mean, and it's been really hard on on the restaurants, but they seem to be coming back, and uh, travel seems to be coming back. I was just in Europe, and uh, there things are getting crowded again in everywhere oh, yeah. I was. Uh-huh. And uh, they, they are seeming to be wearing more masks than we wear here, and uh, but not everyone's wearing masks, and they're not required anymore. So yeah, they even opened on up airplanes. Yeah, well, they yeah. opened up the UK, England, and um, um, we Skype with with Peter's family every Sunday. And um, our nephew is a, um, a a nurse who does is doing um, COVID research. Oh, and um, it, and his wife's a surgeon. And but anyhow, um, he said that. They've opened everything. It's totally open. And the numbers had not gone up. But he said the reason the numbers had not gone up with no protections or anything was because they also stopped paying for the testing. So, therefore, people weren't getting tested. That's right. That's probably right. Yeah. People got tired of it, and they just wanted to move on. Here's a funny thing. Here's a funny thing for you, Paula. My brother, my brother and his wife live in Cornwall, which, which is about as far left as you, yeah. as you can get if you're if you're standing looking north. And there's a there's a cheese produced in Cornwall called Yarg. Uh huh. How do you spell that? You know why it's called Yarg? Because it's grey backwards. It's oh, I see. <laughs> Well, that's funny. That's, that's the last. That's the last name of the guy who invented Cornish Yarg. Oh, interesting. Well, that. Mr. Gray. Uh huh. Well, it's interesting how things get named. <laughs> yeah. 
But they're, they're just they're, they're just down the road from from cheddar producing area in Naples, Utter, of Somerset. Uh-huh. Well, now, um, let, let's jump back a bit. And, um, you're not just award-winning. Uh, it, you've, you've expanded by uh, types of cheeses, uh, and production numbers, all that stuff. I mean, what would you identify as the, the most recent new things about uh, your, your brand? Well, uh, I think that the, the development in recent years has been more in Mexican cheeses. Uh, I think that there's, you know, an interest in that, and uh, it's a, a niche that is new to some people. And uh, I, I think it's there's room for growth there, and so we are interested in making those cheeses. Uh-huh. Well, that's good because, I mean, it, it's really a, a very essential part of Mexican cuisine. The case yes, it is. Part. And I, we make a lot of cheeses that are cheeses for cooking. And uh, I think that I think that there are just innumerable ways to use cheese in cooking. And uh, I enjoy that. I mean, I like coming up with the recipes and the ideas and that right so you, on your website you have um you, you have all these recipes we have recipes on our website and we also uh i send out a newsletter every month and it has a cheese of the month and that's a cheese that is uh i tell about the cheese and then i have a recipe with that particular cheese of the month. And so I enjoy developing those recipes and writing the newsletter. I want to mention the fact, by the way, that I just think it's wonderful. You you, you do classes in pairings, of course. Um, in fact, we're about to be doing a, um, one restaurateur has picked up on a trend of pairing non-alcoholic drinks um, with oh, cheese. really? Interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. So well, that's, that's there's a niche for that, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but you, in addition, and you, everybody has tastings and classes and stuff, but you have a children's cheese-making class. Tell us about that. Oh, that's fun. It's, well, they oh, were I love this picture. Trying, They're door, isn't that absolutely great? adorable. Yeah, it's with Maurizio and that cute little girl. Uh, well, we uh, we had a lot of requests for people who wanted to bring their children to the classes, and so we always said no because we thought it was too dangerous and uh-huh. all these knives and all this stuff. And so anyway, then we got the idea. Well, let's just have a class that's all for children, and they can come with their parents. And it's it. People love it. I mean, they really enjoy it, and the children love it, too, so it's very fun. Yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, I'm watching our grandkids, how they gravitate automatically to the kitchen. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, remember when you were little, you wanted to be in the kitchen, too. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. It's been a long time since I was little. So now all the information as to how to, to get involved with these, you do Italy tours, which is another thing that we should mention. Um, you do which two areas now? You do, I do Tuscany and Tuscany Puglia. and Puglia. Well, we were uh-huh. early visitors to Puglia, and um, we had some extraordinary experiences there with wine and food. And so, and and. and in Tuscany, I went to school in Florence, so um, you know they're my favorite places too. And and since uh, becoming friends with Lydia Bastianich, we've spent more time in the Friuli too. That's fun. Yes, yes. So, she's, but you actually yeah, do great. two tours of this. How many? How big a group is that you take? Uh, the maximum is eight people. 
and um, I rent a villa in Tuscany, and we go there for a week, and we explore the region. We go to winemakers and salami makers and pottery factories and castles, and we, it's varied, and um, we have, you know, wonderful professional guides that explain uh, parts of art history and whatever and then we uh cook dinner together at the villa in the evenings so it's really fun and um uh, i just love it and well, uh in Puglia, any, any Puglia, good reason to go to italy i'll tell you i mean i love italy <laughs> we both do well i didn't know you had studied in florence yeah, yeah i went to yeah when i was a junior in college so, oh, how great! Yeah, I, it, it was yeah. I, I went to the University of Florence, and, mm-hmm. um, and we actually stayed with the, um, my friend and I went together, and we stayed at the home of, was this Renaissance um, palazzo. I mean, absolutely the most gorgeous place um, with with his family, the, the professor's mm-hmm. family. And uh, it was all very formal. I mean, the, the dining, we had white-gloved servers. <laughs> and we were the only two, you know, me and my friend were the only two that, that were not part of the family. So it was a great experience. And um, and then, of course, taking art history at the University of Florence was wonderful, too. Yeah, that's uh, great. But the only problem was coming back. I thought coming home I was slumming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where's the waiter? I mean, where's the uh, where's the server? Where's the, the maid? <laughs> you know, it was funny. Well, now all of this information, because I'm sure people are going to want to get this information. It's all on your website, which is it's www dot mozco m o z z c o dot com mozco.com great it's a great name and easy to remember well Polly you sound like you're not slowing down honey <laughs> no never <laughs> no never and doesn't sound like you are either so well that's the best thing <laughs> well I guess so <laughs> I don't know that there's a choice I don't even know what it means to retire you know, I'm not sure no, you I do don't that. either I don't either so well it's been wonderful to talk to you I've just loved oh, it you so too. much I did too, and, thank and yeah, you. thank you, and yeah, and uh, we'll we'll stay in touch more probably. Maybe well, once we start going back to these um, meetings and conferences. I hope so. Stuff. Yeah, I look forward to that, to seeing everybody again. Okay, well, thank you, Paula. Well, you're Lambert, welcome. Thank Marazza, you, and Mozzarella Company, and yeah, and uh, continued success. Thank you, and best wishes to you. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Um, next up, um, I'm so pleased to be able to reconnect with our old friend Sotiris Kitrilakis, which is a musical name. <clears throat> Clearly, he's Greek, uh, and uh, he's had a whole series of successful businesses in and out of the food world. But right now, we're hoping he continues his big returns with a new food company called Big Picture Foods. Um, he's going to tell you all about it. I could just attest to the fact uh, that he he knows what he's talking about and the food he's making is delicious. Listen to Satiris. You know, listeners, we're going to be talking to Satiris Kitrilakis. As you know, I haven't talked to him in probably over 15 years. <laughs> oh, so good. Satiris to talk to you again. Didn't we have fun? We certainly did. It was a <laughs> wonderful event back then. <laughs> yes. So, but it's been uh, quite, it seems like something's longer ago, everything's so different. 
Well, a lot has happened, you know, and now for yeah. what? Um, is there some kind of a very short resume? <laughs> Your resume is so long. Listeners, he's done everything. Um, I wrote an article about him way back when where I said something what was from nuclear to nurturing, I think was the headline. <laughs> well, that's about right. <laughs> you know, I, for about 25 years, I worked in research and development, high-tech stuff from the nuclear heart, uh, medical devices and all that. And then the little uh, medical device company we had in California was we sold to a pharmaceutical company. And I got a chance to go back to Greece. I hadn't been there since I left as a teenager to come to the States and be an exchange student. And uh, went back there, uh, set up a little summer place, and rediscovered the country cooking. I mean, this was on an island. The home cooks, using the stuff they grew, were doing wonderful things. And then at the end of the summer, I would bring back uh, in the luggage all kinds of tidbits uh, for the winter in Berkeley. But uh, a couple of friends that we'd been involved with uh, in the medical device business said, well, we start a company to import that. So that was the back door into the food business that I entered. And I tried ever since to work with uh, producers that are still doing the old thing, the traditional growing of foods. And uh, there are some wonderful people that are still trying, and uh, they need support. Anyway, that led to uh, starting Peloponnese, which was a, a company that brought olives at the time when Kalamatas were hardly known, and all sorts of other goodies that grew. Uh, eventually, it was bought up by the Hormel Foods, and uh, it became something different. Uh, then uh, I got to know some cheesemakers that were still <laughs> herding sheep and running up and down slopes uh, who were making fantastic feta aged in a barrel. And that led to starting Mount Vicos, a company that imported that right. feta and other cheeses. And mm -hmm. that company was, got bought by United Natural Foods. Um, and then, you know, I was done with that. Well, it was only recently, about a couple of years ago, uh, just before the pandemic started, uh, that a couple of old friends from the food business uh, and I talked about the time being right to really bring some regeneratively farmed foods to this country because finally uh, the idea of regenerative agriculture was catching on. Uh, people realized that really having healthy soil that isn't uh, interfered with, with pesticides and uh, fertilizers and all kinds of chemicals uh, makes a difference. So we started with uh, a bunch of all the producers that I've known for almost 30 years now uh, who are still doing the old thing. And that's what uh, led us to uh, Big Picture Foods, that is a very young company, only about a year and a half old, uh, that's uh, bringing the real thing. And we're in the process trying to get actually certified as regenerative, which is nothing more than what these guys have been doing for generations. Right. That's as quick as I can do it. Oh, that, that covers a lot of territory there, Sotiris. <laughs> um, uh, listeners, the, the company you may have caught um, uh, what Sotiris uh, was describing, what he's doing, is called Big Picture Foods. 
so we, we know how that started. Um, you, you didn't mention you actually organized these farms, these small farms, for production, right? Yes, we did. What we did is talk to people that have are really eager to continue doing this. So we propose to them that they work with us, will take as much of the product as we can sell, hopefully soon all of it, and uh, they will continue to do uh, the cultivation that uh, they've been doing, which really qualifies for uh, certification, we're about to get them certified as regenerative, organic regenerative agriculture. Uh, it's now there's an organization in this country, ROA, that does that. And we've been talking to them, and it looks like all the practices these guys do are, in fact, uh, what they have in mind for the certification. So we have a cluster of uh, producers of, of course, what else? Kalamata olives in the Peloponnese. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then we have another group uh, in uh, central Greece, uh, near the water below Mount Olympus, up right in the middle, who are doing green olives. And I must say, and this is something that very few people realize, all green olives that are commercially available in this country are treated with lye before... Yeah, oh, listen, I was just going to bring that up because I thought I was doing um, my, myself and my mother a big favor. I, I was able to locate some, um, you know, uncured green olives. And then I started looking up how you cure them. And you soak them in lye. Well... Are you uh, there? Yeah? Yes, I am. And so, I mean, I couldn't believe that, that we actually were eating things that had been soaked in lye. Well, this is the thing, and it isn't talked about. Really, the reason they do that, Anne, is to hurry up the cure. Because normally, if you do the traditional thing, which is to put the green olives in salt water and wait six months... Uh, it takes six or more months to complete the fermentation and the cure. Now, by dumping them in lye first, what you do is you make the skin of the olive permeable and the lye invades the layers of flesh of olive where it reduces the, uh, the, the, the material that's bitter and hurries up the debittering process, also makes it very easy to then ferment the green olives with laboratory cultures, and that's something else we should talk about, is the cultures that are used. And the whole process is done in about two months instead of six or eight months. But in the process you have exposed the olives to that harsh chemical, and you've lost about half or 60% of the nutritional value yeah, the of the olives. Well, we never made, we never cured those olives. I, wouldn't, I could not believe that we would ingest something that had been soaking in lye. I mean, why doesn't that kill people? <laughs> <laughs> well, they rinse it afterwards. After it spends a day or two in lye, they rinse it with lots of water, and that brings up another point, that all that water with the lye in it is dumped. It's, in effect, using up water, which is becoming a precious commodity, and that lye usually ends up in the ground, which is not very good. For which soil. is the opposite of regenerative agriculture. Exactly, exactly. I don't know. It's a very complex. It's, I mean, it's just, it's gone on for so long, and it's, it's gone under the radar for so long. How do you go about educating people about this process? Well, we try to talk to them, and I'm really grateful to you that you're 
giving us an opportunity to tell the, your audience about this process because it, it's very important. Uh, you know, there are so many aspects of this that are uh, really unknown and have to do with the health of the soil, the health of the trees, and the health of us eaters, yeah. <laughs> because uh, the olives that have been just naturally fermented with the cultures that in, were initiated in the ground, in that live soil, have all sorts of wonderful antioxidants, the polyphenols, uh, they have many vitamins, and the content is about three times as much. They also have a great biodiversity of the probiotic bacteria, the lactobacillus, which mm -hmm. is what ferment all foods. When the lactobacillus originated, originated in the soil, and are adhering to the skin of the olives, and when you put them in salt water, they initiate the fermentation, you get more than 30 different variants of lactobacillus, uh, wow. as opposed to the cultures that come from a laboratory that you have to use after the lye bath, because there is nothing left living on the olives, you have to use the lab cultures, which are one or two strains that are selected, not because of their health uh, advantages. They're selected because they keep the fermentation going at a very rapid pace. So, in effect, uh, even that is shortchanged with the modern techniques. The other point that I'd like to make is that along with the bacteria, the lactobacillus that come from the ground, there are a lot of yeasts, different species of yeasts that come with the olive. And those yeasts and some of the strains of lactobacillus are responsible for the wonderful flavors of a fermented olive. Because just like in the case of cheese that you... Uh, cure that you age in a cage up in the in a cave up in the Alps mm -hmm. where you get many different cultures breaking down the organic acids into smaller volatile molecules that then are the wonderful aromas of that cheese. They work on the back of your uh, palate uh, long after you've eaten the piece of cheese or the olive. <laughs> yeah, I, I was but, thinking that when you talked about bringing back cheese in your suitcase, because we used to do that, and <laughs> the smell lingers forever. <laughs> oh, well, I think the customs get a little shook up, so you always have to tell them that this is aged cheese, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> Where, where does the blue zone fit in here, Sotiris? Say it again, I didn't hear you. Where, do, where does the blue zone fit in? There are all kinds of islands like the one that, that you lived on. The, the residents live well, very long the, lives because of the nutrition profile that they have. And I thought it was called the blue, the people... In the blue zone, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got you. Well, uh, you know, the, what's happening in Greece and uh, most of southern Europe is that gradually technology is taking over. And you find in the, seat, in the cities there are the, the, the chronic diseases that come with so-called civilization. What you find in some of the islands and on the mountainsides where people grow their own stuff and eat their own stuff and process it the way they've always done, uh, you find the superannuated uh, uh, octogenarians and nanogenarians, and you find uh, 
old men that will chase the goat up the hill when it gets away and they'll catch it. <laughs> and that is so typical. You can see it, you know. Uh, you walk the, the, streets, the streets of the big cities and you see not only many more obese adults than I remember in, from my childhood, but you also see a lot of obese children, which oh, is yeah. sad. Yeah. It really yeah. is sad. So the blue zones have been pushed out where, on the mountainsides and on certain islands. You've just gotten into this business, more or less, um, and so, have you gotten any feedback? I mean, how how deaf are people to to act, the reality of of fermentation and and flavor and health? I mean, you must talk to a lot of people, right? Well, and let me tell you, uh, there is an old uh, concept which is you get people's attention. Uh, by appealing to their stomach first. Yeah. So what I find... Well, it's good. Yeah. The flavor is extraordinary. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the point. You know what I love is your peppers. You should, I guess I should ask you to, to explain to our listeners what the products are, because I'm in love with those peppers you do. And you don't cook them, you said. Well, this is very interesting, because that is... Uh, really something unique. I'm very proud of that uh, because this is the way that grandmothers used to do peppers in the village, and they still mm -hmm. do. What they do is the fresh peppers, either whole or cut up, are put into salt water, into brine. And within about two or three days, that brine begins, as they call it, boiled, which really is bubbles uh -huh. start coming up. Like as when you make sauerkraut, the cabbage begins to ferment. Those peppers ferment, and unlike olives, which, of course, have thick flesh and also a very tough skin, the peppers, within a very short time, complete their fermentation, which can be anywhere from two weeks to three, maybe four weeks if the weather is cool. At that mm -hmm. point, a lot of the sugar and the starch in the peppers has been converted to lactic acid. And the brine that the peppers are in has got a whole lot of lactobacilli cultures that, uh, in effect, have excluded all other species of bacteria. The, this is the preservation that uh, has been used for millennia to keep uh, fresh produce uh, for the time when you can't grow it, for the winter. You leave those mm -hmm. peppers in that brine, they're good in January, even though you put them there in July. Uh, yeah. This is the way that these peppers are done. Let me uh, just mention that commercially, the so-called pickled peppers are peppers that are harvested. They're put in a vinegar brine, vinegar and salt water, and immediately they're, they're done. Nothing happens. There's no fermentation because the vinegar... The, the pH is very high. The, whatever uh, uh, cultures were on the skin of the peppers, the peppers are killed in that process. And, of course, when they put them in a jar, they cook them. They pasteurize them. So all right. the jarred peppers you get have been exposed to temperatures of about 170 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit for at least five minutes. That, that's sort of cooking. Uh, that's why the difference in taste is immense. It is immense. Yeah. Wasn't, it, wasn't it Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 
Uh, I don't know that's English way, or Greek. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, you know, if the, and the, the food chemist that uh, I've talked over the years and when I, was, I started trying to get these peppers done for commercial purposes the way that they were always done by, at home, uh, I was told that's impossible. Well, it's not impossible. All it takes is extra care. And what we've done with these peppers is do that very carefully, They're especially in the early stages of fermentation. You have to keep an eye on them and make sure that uh, the salinity is right, that the right acids are being produced, and so on. So that it's the, really the convenience of the producers, the industrial producers, that dictates what we eat so often as opposed to the natural process uh, that invariably ends up tasting a hell of a lot better and on top of it is a lot healthier for you. I think the two go together. Maybe that's evolution. <laughs> Well, maybe. <laughs> could be. Why not? I mean, that's how we avoided poisonous foods. So, the person who ingested it didn't live. <laughs> so, um, now, you, you indicated on some of your literature, and by the way, listeners, these products come with really direct and, and, and beautifully written um, the, the descriptions of what the process the product and so forth. Um, you indicated at one point that these farmers cure these themselves. There's no transportation to a large central facility or anything. That is true, and that adds uh, value to what they sell to us. What they do is, just as they've always done, on the farm they have vats where the olives go, and are kept for months. Uh, that process with the industrial approach is happens at the centralized location where mm -hmm. the brokers will go to the farm, they will pay spot price at the time of harvest, and will truck away the olives and in, bring them to a facility where they're co-mingled with other olives because these are large operations from other producers and the industrial processing will start. The farmers, when they sell on the spot, uh, get uh, quite a bit less money than they do when they sell to people like us. And by the way, we're not the only ones doing that. There are very... Uh, special stores in Greece, in the cities, where they make arrangements like that with farmers that do traditional things. Because there are enough Greeks that demand that taste uh, still, uh, as opposed to people who haven't known about it in this country. So doing that gives them more income from the produce, and the long-term relationships eliminate the commodity fluctuations, which everybody that's ever been in farming knows all about. There's oh, a good yeah. year, and then there are three bad years. Yeah. Well, here we even all that out. They know they're going to sell their product. There is no blackmailing. There is no extortionist techniques applied. So it makes a big difference for everybody. But so it's common um, to have this, this uh, production stream in Greece, but I mean, is there anybody else in the United States doing it? I not that I know of. In in mm -hmm. the states, what has happened, and in California, you know, when I first started out uh, in the early '80s, there were two or three people in California that were doing this sort of thing, and they were about to give up, and soon gave up. I think all of the uh, California olives get uh, processed uh, with the California cure, which is much worse than even the lye cure. They, mm -hmm. uh, they, in effect, they lie cure all the way, 
and then they put them in the tin and they sterilize, which means <laughs> that they they go to a higher temperature than even the Ooh. pasteurization. Yeah. And you get, you know, the, the so California ripe, which are also dyed with ferrous gluconate to, to make them black because the light cure completely oh, eliminates no. the, the color. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's hard to believe it's true. <laughs> well, what, what they do is they use a, an organic compound of iron, ferrous gluconate, uh, to in this uh, in a solution they put the the olives in that solution that penetrates the flesh and then they expose it by to air by bubbling air through the vat which oxidizes the iron and makes it look black that's why the canned <laughs> olives uh, if you cut them you see a black gray color exactly <laughs> Well, that's a telltale. Sign. Oh, that's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, listeners, if, if you want to c- get a comparison here, uh, buy uh, some of these Greek olives from um, Big Picture Foods and try a black one and compare it to the things that you buy in a can, which always tasted to be like plastic. Anyhow, the canned black olives <laughs> they don't have anything to do with olives itself, <laughs> themselves. So, oh, I mean... I, you know, I, I just I hope that that this catches on. Right now, you have different types of olives. Um, you say olives are like wine, right? And that it, it, you just don't describe them as red and black. Of course I mean, not. Yeah, or red and white. I mean, like wine, red and white. And 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 you have different peppers. And what any yes. other products? We have three kinds of peppers, uh, a red pepper, which is a florina pepper, that's the varietal, uh, that's yeah. fleshy and comes in strips. We have a banana pepper, they call it a banana because it's a bright yellow pepper, smaller than the red, and that comes in little slices. And then we have pepperoncini, which are, of course, the pointed little peppers that uh, have a bit of a bite. Uh, and they're, they're really, I mean, those are my favorites, especially if you, uh, you, you've got a cheese plate. They can yeah, be a they, great they go on a, right, And, and then we have, cap- we have capers, which are another story. Oh, I forgot altogether. about those. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't get any of those. I love capers. Oh, you yeah. must get them because they're wild. They're not cultivated. Wild. They're, they're foraged by the villagers near the coastline. They, they're foraged. And then, unlike, again, the typical pepper treatment, caper treatment, which is to go in a vinegar brine, these are as well fermented. And then uh, they're uh, packaged. And, of course, they're kept refrigerated. And the reason all these things are kept refrigerated is because we have live cultures in there. And if the live cultures find any sugar that's left in the olive or starch or the peppers, they will ferment it, and then that will produce carbon dioxide, which will puff up the container. But if you keep them in the fridge... They, the, the, the cultures are essentially dormant, so you yeah. don't get any of that. If right. you do, it doesn't matter. It's not going to kill you. you know, uh, <laughs> it's just carbon dioxide that permit more fermented sugars. The protection is the population of lactobacilli that, in effect, are the guardians of the product. Again, always I learn more from you, Sotiris. Um, and listeners, go on this website and, and read the, the copy that explains all of this to it. It's called, um, the website is 
bigpicturefoods, plural, dot com. And uh, Satiris, I mean, I wish you much success. Are you planning on future products, additions? Well, thank you very much. And once again, I appreciate your support and your interest. And I hope your listeners try all this because they'd be surprised. Uh I think they will, too. (laughs) Well, I'm very thrilled for you and all of us. (laughs) Great to talk to you again. Another week, one of the biggest reasons of the food industry is so great is because the people in it are so creative and wonderful, and I'm always so happy to follow these people, the same people, year after year after year in the food industry. Well, as I said, that does it for us today. So join us again next week for more interesting talks and about food and food people. Until then, bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.